0: Welcome to Hidden Voices. I'm your host, Raissa Habersham. Join me on my journey to learn more about the experiences of Georgia residents with developmental disabilities, guided along the way by my co-host and mentor, Dorona King. Meeting Garrick and Azir on the last episode made me hyper aware of how many assumptions I didn't know I had about people with disabilities. And it made me wonder how many of those assumptions have been influenced by my own experiences. What kept replaying in my mind from that conversation is how Garrick and Azir navigate dating. I had assumed that they practiced talking to women so they could make sure they were approaching them with respect. But hearing that they practice speaking to women because they want to be seen as people who love, people who have sexual desires, that was an eye-opener. How did I not consider that before? I'm realizing that I should be more careful about jumping to my own conclusions. My conversation with Garrick and Azir left me with a lot to think about around the idea of love. For me, for the longest time, love was something I only associated with my family and friends. It wasn't until my first relationship that my views changed. I started to understand why we all need someone, a person to lean on. For me, a relationship meant having emotional support. For others, a relationship may satisfy the need for physical intimacy. And in a pandemic, touch is off the table for so many people. And without those physical connections, it can be hard to develop a relationship. When I talked to Gary Kanazir, I learned that creating those physical connections can be even more difficult for people with developmental disabilities. I spoke with Darona about my thoughts on love and the conversation I had with Garrick and Nazir. After speaking with Nazir and Garrick, I learned that the idea of love is obviously different through different lived experiences. When Garrick discussed how he talks to Nazir about speaking with women, You know, he talks to them and he says, Hey ladies, how are you doing? Have a nice day. My mind immediately went to, oh, okay, he's encouraging him not to catcall women. But when I asked Garrick why he did that, Garrick's response was, Well, people assume that people with disabilities don't have feelings, that they're, you know, oh, they're adorable or they're being cute or they don't understand the concept of love. And that never crossed my mind. Given what you're processing, what's changing? I think for me, just being a bit more open-minded, being a bit more compassionate as well. It's also ironic saying this aloud because as a journalist, that's usually what I bring myself into in my work. Mm -hmm. So I'm learning a lot about you know, my own bias or how my own personal experience can get in the way, but beyond my work, you know, my day-to-day interactions with just people. Yeah. It's challenging to
1: face our own assumptions, especially when we begin recognizing they may be negative assumptions, right? And the, the ones that we have, we have really inherited from our, our surroundings, our culture, our society, the notion Of love, people rarely think about love and not just familial love. That's easy. You know, we love our parents, we love our children, our siblings. But romantic love and thinking about the lives of people with disabilities, why would we assume that if everybody else has sexual urges and desires for, you know, physical touch and and just um, intimate relationship, that people with disabilities somehow do not. There are reasons why our culture has gotten there. Um, The assumptions around love and intimacy for people with disabilities is really based upon the attitude from society that people with disabilities are somehow asexual, or if they are sexual, it's almost considered deviant or perverted. That's a real big issue for people with disabilities, which really gets in the way of um, expressing and having a a model of how you express that you are attracted to someone without it being perceived as, as something wrong. We have really low expectations as a culture for people who are perceived different. And I think one of the things that our conversations can do is maybe raise expectations we think about the, the absurdity of, you know, like s- special proms where people with disabilities get matched with other people with disabilities on the dance floor. And that's somehow held up as an example of how people can love. What could be held up is that a person gets drawn to a person <laughs> and they have an opportunity to have experiences together. But that's not the case. There's almost, there's almost this poverty of experiences around relationship and love for people with disabilities because it just doesn't get held up to happen.
0: When you mentioned the prom, it reminded me of a story I wrote about a young woman who became prom queen. And my editor, in part, wanted me to write this story um, because she had a developmental disability. You know, in that moment, I was like, well, Is it fair to write this story? I know that at the end of the day, that story was written to generate clicks.
1: It is one of those
0: consistently
1: wounding experiences for people with disabilities that their lives are are made trivial or their lives are trivialized around the things that people with more accepted disabilities or abilities would never accept, right? That's painful, that's harmful.
0: You know, the thing that I wonder, you know, most is how do you navigate finding that person, especially in the pandemic, you know, you can't really go out and meet someone and you know, how are you navigating this? Are you turning to online dating? You know, is that what someone with a developmental disability would navigate as well? If there is someone out there who's created a dating website For people with developmental disabilities? And does that segregate you from a population of people that you deserve to date as well? And then adding to that, you know, what if you identify as LGBTQ? Those are questions that
1: the entire population is probably wrestling with. (laughs) Um, And the approach, for example, the citizen advocacy approach is going to still be. What is the most typical, what's normative? And it's the same for people with disabilities. And the assumption you brought up this, would there be a disability dating site? So that plays into some of the same old assumptions that people with disabilities only will want to be around or need to be around other people with disabilities. When the reality is people want to be around diverse people. It's, it's not a disability issue. It's a it's a love issue. It's a it's a it's a need and desire to be around other be with and around other human beings. So an answer to how does that best happen is through people. It's usually not through systems.
0: You know, what about, you know, if you want to have children?
1: Well it typically happens
0: the old fashioned way. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, there's
1: just a, there's really one way that that baby gets produced, so that some sperms has to meet the ovum. So people with disabilities, again, should have the opportunity to do the same. You know, people may adopt children, but the conversation should not be one that's thwarted or discouraged when someone who might be interested in and um, in caring for a child, people are told they shouldn't have children, people with disabilities, they shouldn't have children. Um, The eugenics movement is is no longer a movement, but the ideas of um, eugenics is still practiced. Women, we don't see eugenics in the same way where people are just routinely sterilized. But I do know that young women, particularly say in the foster care system who have disability
0: labels, are immediately at puberty given birth control pills. Wow, that's mind-blowing. <sighs> so it's complex. We don't have answers, right? What I do know is that people
1: should have the experiences so that they can make the choices that they want
0: for their heart. This really disturbed me. The thought of someone controlling my body, my choices, my reproduction— I couldn't imagine someone deciding whether or not I'm fit to raise a child. I couldn't shake how violated I felt at just the thought of that. Dorona suggested I meet with Emily Seabury, an artist and mother to newborn Jacob. Like many new moms, Emily couldn't stop talking about Jacob, the bond she has with him, and the joy he brings her.
2: So I... um. Just had a baby. His name is Jacob Riley Seabury, and he's the sweetest, best, well-behaved baby that I've had. He is four months old now, and he's talking up a storm in baby talk, and he knows how to do a lot of things he's supposed to be doing in his milestones this age, and he loves his mommy and daddy. He never takes his eyes off of mommy, and he's starting to never take his eyes off of daddy. He was seven pounds and two ounces, and it was very amazing to have him out and to be able to see what he looked like and to be able to bond with him and be with him. It was kind of hard for me for the first few months. It took me a while to realize that I was a mom, that I was actually a mom and that I'm actually have a baby that I'm going to be taking care of the rest of my life. He's he's mine.
0: I heard that you're also a bit of an artist. Can you talk to me a little bit about your artwork?
2: Yes, I'm a very multi-talented artist. I've done things uh with jewelry, making necklaces and bracelets, and stained glass mosaics, which I had more access to when I was in the church program. Right now they're closed because of coronavirus. I've done paintings, acrylic paintings. I'm planning to start a small business somehow doing making either making candles or sugar scrubs or both. I have a candle making set that my dad got me for my birthday and so hopefully I can learn how to make those.
0: Emily has multiple labels that affect how she is viewed by society. This affects her access to employment, health care, and her ability to start a family without excessive oversight. This has resulted in a lot of anxiety for Emily. Emily's support system usually consists of her fiancé, William Smith, her stepmom, and her extended family. Since the pandemic, though, Emily has had to rely a lot more on her fiancé which makes me think about how much I had to lean on my husband for financial support when I quit my job in July 2020, mid-pandemic. In relationships, there always comes a time when we have to lean more on our partner. Emily and William are no exception. Can you talk to me a little bit about you know, how your fiancé has been supportive of you through this process? And, and can you also tell me you know, a little bit about how you two met?
2: Yes, me and my fiance have known each other for over 10, at least 10 years or over. Um, we've met through the Holy Comforter Episcopal Church um, Friendship Center, and we've been off and on, off and on so many years. We didn't really think it was going to work out. We've broken up, gotten back together, broken up, gotten back together. It's just like a nonstop love and hate relationship. Once the baby was born, like I had gone to a fortune teller, my friend from the church, one of my friends from the church had taken me there and paid for my uh, my reading she had actually told me that William was gonna be the one in my life. I didn't believe it whatsoever. I was like, there is how on earth is she gonna be in my life when he doesn't do anything he's he needs to do, he doesn't take care of himself, da da, da da. And lo and behold, when I had the baby, he was on top of everything. His whole personality changed. He has been so responsible, so on top of everything, so nice, so sweet, so you know he's such a great dad with the baby. He's such a great fiance with me. We're gonna get married sometime next spring, and he's planning to adopt a child. And also I've been getting counseling with me and him just in general with our own mental health services, and that's helped a lot too. And the more I realize things that need to be changed, the more I work on changing them for the better for both of our relationship, and also for the well-being of the baby. The main thing is is even though i got pregnant by another person his love for me is so strong he'll do anything for me including marry me even though the child is not him it's, it, his uh, including everything that he's done for me and been there for me no matter what his love is very strong for me and my love is growing the same and i appreciate everything that he has done for me ever since the baby's been born all i can do is appreciate and be grateful and tell him how much I love him and how much I appreciate him and try to remember the good things that he's doing. I feel a difference in how I feel about the whole relationship. And and what really woke me up is when he actually was the one who stepped up to the plate. He was the one who was the father since the baby's been born. He was the one who's always been in my life.
0: Like many new mothers in the pandemic, Emily is navigating the challenge of having limited access to her doctors. On top of that, Emily has had to deal with prejudice from people within the healthcare system because of her disability.
2: Well, to be honest, um, somebody already called defects on me in the beginning before I even had a chance to take care of the baby. Like I I took him to his first appointment at the pediatrician's office, and of course, I was going through changes as a new mother, and my anxiety was sky high when I was in the office, of course, because it's new territory, and my first appointment with him, and I don't know my baby. I'm still going to know him and stuff, you know, all this new stuff. And next couple of days, the knocks on my door and says that there's allegations against me of some sort and uh, that they need to do a check-in or whatever. And basically, they, they kept an eye on me for a couple of weeks until they had no proof that anything was going wrong and they closed the case. They had to prove that I had a support system because of my mental illness, I guess.
0: I want to ask you, you know, what would you want people to know about having a child as a person with a disability.
2: Because they did that, it made me feel like they don't even give people a chance when they just have a baby. Of course, they're going to be going through mood swings and stuff. They're going to have anxiety. It's it's normal for you to go through a lot of hormonal changes after you have your baby. Just because you're going through a lot of hormonal changes, if you have support that you need, you're going to be okay. And they can't judge you like that. Just stay cool, calm and collected, because that's the only thing that got me through defects leaving me alone is basically staying calm and collected. My I called my adopted mom for support because they had come right after my adoptive mom left. And so I had to call my mom and say, you know, defects just showed up. I don't know what to do. I was kind of panicky. And she said, just stay calm, tell them what they need to know, but not too much, and they'll let you alone.
0: What did it feel like for you to have defects called on you like that?
2: I was scared. I was scared that my child was going to be taken away for, because I'm mentally ill. And that's like a very judgmental thing. I mean, just because I have struggles doesn't mean I can't be a mom. I've gone many years through stability before I got pregnant. And the reason I decided to keep the baby is because I knew I was doing well and I knew I could do well.
0: Apart from family, Emily also gets support from her citizen advocate, Lynn Witten, who has become somewhat of a role model in Emily's life. How did your citizen advocate come into play?
2: So she uh, also was hooked up with me through the church. And so the citizen advocacy director, Dorona King, had come to the church and she was coming through the art program. And I was working on a piece of art at the time. And Dorona, somehow, she always knows how to make matches with um, citizen advocates. And she hooked me up with uh, Lynn Whitten.
0: At what age did you meet her and how has she helped you navigate life?
2: To be honest, I don't know exactly what age, but it was at least in my mid twenties. Right now, I'm 33. She's been like a best friend that uh, that is able to help me with support, and um, she's also helped me financially a couple times. Um, she's awesome and cool to look up to, and just to have somebody extra to talk to outside of everybody that already is close with me. Um, and she's she's like a an extra support system.
0: While I was happy to hear that Emily had a support system within her family and friends, it saddened me to hear that a doctor or nurse would contact child services thinking Emily was not fit to be a mother. While someone with a disability might experience prejudice or pushback when falling in love or starting a family, others may call her brave for going through with it anyway. I talked with Dorona, who explained why we might reconsider using the word brave. I mean, and I guess I say brave because, you know, there are a lot of people who take into consideration, you know, things about how their family thinks and just ignoring it and tossing it out the window, I think it says a lot about that person. It says to me that you want to be able to have the freedom to make your own decisions without somebody dictating that for you and what that looks like. That's part of a larger issue.
1: Um, we, I think we might have mentioned exploitation, certainly disability porn for people, that people become heroes somehow who have disabilities just for doing what people do. And until we get beyond that um, of accrediting almost like this, oh, superhuman, extra special, overcome all the odds when people with disabilities do what people with disabilities don't do, then we haven't moved that pendulum of what our assumptions are. They aren't heroic. They are people, people in love, doing what people in love have done for thousands of
0: years. I never thought about that. They may not want to be considered brave for what they're doing because is it considered brave to, you know, fight for, you know, equality or fight for what you know you deserve? That's probably what they don't want to be called. They just want to be acknowledged as people who make decisions and people whose decisions should be respected going forward. They want to have the say in what they're called. So I shouldn't put that adjective on them. During my conversation with Emily, what stuck out to me was that she was segregated from other students in school.
2: When I was young, I acted out a lot in school. I acted out so much sometimes that they considered putting me in other classes, but it didn't happened until middle school when I was placed in some kind of behavioral disorder class or whatever. I think it was special education, actually. I don't know what it was, but I think it was behavioral disorder, but it was special ed at the same time. Like the learning level was lower.
0: I asked Derona if this was still prevalent in schools today.
2: As a culture, we
1: have determined that segregation is wrong, right? But somehow we still accept this form of segregation for students with disabilities during COVID-19. Um, the those children in school ha- have experienced this extreme segregation. Um, you're already in a separate classroom, sometimes in a separate part of the building or doing things in a, on a completely different schedule than the student body population. Atlanta shut down. March 12th, everybody was sent home. I mean, it was a pandemic. Now, the pivot for Students, mainstream, the pivot was, okay, they got it together. They were beginning to send work home. Their virtual learning started happening. For most students with disabilities, none of that happened. For most students with disabilities, at March 12th, nothing happened.
0: Join us for the next episode of Hidden Voices, where we'll talk about the segregated special education system in Georgia, and how special education programs are navigating the pandemic. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities, Resurgence Impact Consulting, Citizen Advocacy of Atlanta and DeKalb, and Larsh Atlanta, made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Raisa Habersham, and Derona King is my co-host. Our executive producers are Irene Turner from The Storytelling Project and Michelle Corey with Frequency Media. Ina Garkusha is our producer. Matthew Filler is our editor. Hidden Voices is sponsored by the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities, whose vision is a state in which all persons are included in all facets of community life have choices while exercising control over their lives and are encouraged to achieve their full potential. GCDD advances social and policy changes that further an integrated community life for persons with developmental disabilities, their families, friends, neighbors, and all who support them. This podcast grew out of their larger GCDD storytelling project. You can find out more about them and their great advocacy for and with people with developmental disabilities at GCDD.org.